Hi and welcome to episode 44 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us again at the Page One Podcast. If this is your first episode at the Page One Podcast, we'd like to speak to writers of all kinds about how they broke into the industry, what their writing process is, and try and get as many hints and tips as possible, especially for myself and Tarek, who are <laughs> also try to write. Um, but we've had some great episodes. Last week we had uh, Alistair Campbell, former... Uh, advisor to Tony Blair, but uh, talking a lot about writing, lots of good writing advice in there, yeah. I thought, as well. Very interesting episode. Yeah, um, and then further back, we've got lots of great guests. So do, please do check out our website, which just has been redesigned on the podcast page, so it should hopefully be easier to find uh, past guests. Exactly. Um, but we've got a great guest this week, Tarek. We do. This week, we are chatting with Lauren Bukas, who... Uh, people will probably know most from The Shining Girls. Yeah. It was our kind of it was a third book, but it was actually our first, I think, big international success. Yeah, a couple of years back. Great book, great, great book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but a time traveling serial killer. So it's mm-hmm. you know it's definitely right up my street. And she has a new book out called Afterland, which is a post pandemic uh, <laughs> world where ninety nine percent of men have died out. So it's a really interesting I think twist on. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a the world in ruins type no. story. It's a society shifted on, on on its axis. But it's also sort of a sort of noir road trip chase mm. novel as well. It's it's, it's really interesting. Good, yeah. um, like, I think all of her novels actually have that sort of. It, you can't easily categorize them in one genre. They sort no, of span exactly. across various yeah. genres. Um, but it's it's a really good book, um, and it's a really great chat we have with Lauren. Gave us lots of good writing advice and. You know, also, it was interesting to hear, you know, the the length of time it took her to break through with that first novel um, and then how the success of The Shining Girls sort of changed everything as well. Yeah, it's a really fantastic listen and uh, I think everyone will get a lot out of it. Yeah, so enough from us. We'll be back at the end of the podcast to chat a bit more and let you know about next week's guest as well, who's another great one. On with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, 
so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Was that always the ambition since you were small? Uh, I wanted to be a writer since I was five years old and I found out that that was a job that you could have, that you could get paid to make up stories and that Enid Blyton had made a million pounds from making up stories. <laughs> I was like, sign me the hell up. I am in. Uh, and then it only took me 30 years to get to the point where I could do that full-time professionally. Mm. But, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a path, a goal to aim for. Exactly. So, so I mean, so when did you sort of get serious about it then? having decided at five that's what you wanted to do when did you sort of put your mind to it and really focus on it I wrote my first novel when I was 17 years old um it is going to stay in it's, it's printed out and it's in a box and actually I need to burn that box um <laughs> but yeah so I wrote that between when I was 17 and 19 I think I sent it out to an agent in South Africa but you know it was the days before the internet how did you get published who knew mm -hmm. You know, especially coming from South Africa. And also, I'm quite grateful it didn't get published because I think it's, um, you know, it was a book written by a 17-year-old and that 17-year-old was not Mary Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. so true. There's always these books that everyone always writes when they're younger. And at the time, you're like, this is, I mean, I read some books, but this is the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from that, it seems to me that you then, did you start writing sort of shorter stories? You seem to publish quite a lot of short stuff before yeah. the novels came out. So what happened was, um, you know, I went backpacking for a year. I came back and I managed to get a job working for a computer magazine. Um, and I started out by doing kids game reviews, uh, you know, the kind of the educational stuff. And then they said that they needed someone on staff. And, um, and that was really great because now I was getting paid to write. And I remember driving back from that job interview and like being almost in tears, I was so happy because I was going to get paid to write. Mm -hmm. This was been the dream my whole life. Um, but I started writing and publishing shorts probably probably from about like 2000, they started getting published in very kind of tiny zines, unpaid, um, mm -hmm. you know, some weird stuff online, the usual. And then I was commissioned to write a nonfiction book called Maverick, Extraordinary Woman from South Africa's Past. Um, and... You know, and it was nonfiction. It was like this kind of pop history about really interesting characters and, and real people in, in the last 300 years. Um, and that gave me a lot of confidence. But I was also working as a journalist. And that was where I learned to write, where I learned to do dialogue, where I learned to understand how people think differently from each other, how much work dialogue can do, how to go into a place and try and capture a sense of it and get a sense of location and work on my descriptive abilities. And sometimes it was in the really shitty jobs that, mm -hmm. you know, I really had to work harder because if you're writing a story on, you know, teenage vampires or electricity cable thieves or vigilantes, that's really exciting and fun. But if you're writing a story as you do as a freelance journalist, when you're hustling for every buck, yeah. On best small conference venues in the Western Cape, <laughs> you got to bust out some skills to make that remotely readable. Uh -huh. You know, what so, was number one? 
<laughs> I can't. I cannot remember. I have blocked it out. <laughs> Thanks for revisiting the promo with me. So, so the Maverick book that you you got signed up to do. How did you, how did that come about? How did you did you pitch that, or did someone come up to you and say, "We want you to write this for us"? No, uh, I knew the publisher, um, and she uh, actually approached a different journalist first, and I was the second choice. But yeah. <laughs> But she knew me from my journalism work, um, cool. and okay. we were both kind of young in the city, and we'd, we'd kind of traveled in the same media circle. So, you know, I can't say it was based on particular merits, and like I said, I was the second choice. But, you know, so much of, you know, getting anywhere is the people you know and, like, mm-hmm. the networks you maintain. Yeah, and, and yeah. also making use of, you know, you, something happens and you grab it and you and you, yeah. you, you run with it, I suppose, and that's and knowing exactly. when, when to do that is important. And, and did writing that then give you the sort of belief that yeah I can do this I can write a longer form thing and push you forward to writing writing your novels or did that come later well I'd been writing Moxieland for you know a couple of years at that point um you know and it was this great novel but I kept going back and revisiting the first three chapters and second guessing myself I've got I've got phrasing for it now which is um Jumping on the motorcycle of doubt and doing donuts in the parking lot. I'm, st- I'm <laughs> stuck on that motorcycle. I know it, I know yeah. it well. <laughs> exactly. That motorcy- it's the worst motorcycle. And I got back into that motorcycle with Afterland, you know, and uh-huh. I spent a lot of time, like, kind of second-guessing myself. And it's just it's stupid. Like, you need to, like, get on the motorcycle and drive. Mm-hmm. Donuts in the parking lot are not interesting to anyone. <laughs> and is it, you know, when, when you are in that moment of, like, I'm just trapped, you know, in a, in a, in a going round and round here, I can't get off it. Is it always certain type of books where you find that happens? Or is it, you know, can, can you tell when you're writing something, this is going to be one I'm going to struggle with? Or, you know, do certain books just kind of flow better? Um, you know, I think it's for me with having gone through it again a second time. The first time was fear of success, fear of failure. You know, it was just all the typical imposter syndrome and self-doubt, which, of course, you know, the imposter syndrome doesn't get away, go away five novels in. I'm still dealing with it. But I think also what happened with Afterland was, you know, I'd just gone through a divorce. Um, you know, so there was a lot of personal stuff as well. And I'd lost my first reader who had been my husband. Um, and it was trying to find someone else who I could trust with my work to read it and give me the feedback I needed that I could discuss it with. Um, and I think those first readers are really vital. And it took me a while to find that again. And and I think especially when when you're pretty good at what you do, it's so easy to be like, oh, well, if I just rewrote this chapter from this perspective, mm-hmm. uh, then it would work. And you rewrite the chapter from that perspective, and it does work because you're kind of good at what, you've, what you do and you've practiced this stuff before. And now you've got two good versions, and that just creates even more yeah. self-doubt. And it's, just, yeah. it's a nightmare. Well, so just, mean, just finish the damn book. That's the only thing which counts. Well, and then... <laughs> Yeah, the draft zero theory is brilliant. I love that. What, what's that one? Do you want to explain? Which that? is that you know you you write a hot mess and it's not even draft one. It's mm-hmm. draft it's draft zero. It's just getting the whole thing down on the page, um, and then you can like sift through it and like figure out what, what works and what doesn't. But until you have the shape of the thing, you can't you can't actually fix it. Yeah, and I mean something that we've spoken about with other people and something that I am very bad at is is knowing when something is finished because there is that temptation always to say well does that work or maybe I could tinker with this bit or change that bit and keep you know there's a temptation especially I think maybe when you're starting out but to keep going back and keep trying to fix it or make it slightly better how do you judge when right no this is it I'm passing it on this one I'm I'm throwing passing this to someone else to deal with now I'm I'm happy I have very scary deadlines right okay 
That's... Um, and editors who will fire me if I don't actually deliver <laughs> right. and stop fucking around and actually put the book down <laughs> and let them do their job and then I can rewrite it to my heart's content and then there's another scary deadline and the edits have to be in and then I have to let it go. So um, going back to Moxieland, when, yep. how did you get your first agent and what happened there? Did you, did you have to send it out to a lot of people or did it get picked up quite quickly? How, how did that work? So it's interesting. The original version of Moxieland was actually, um, it was written in this kind of very uh, fabricated language. I called it slanguage, you know. So it was a lot of South African slang pushed to the limits. I think, I, you know, I'd read Train Spotting um, and um, what's the other one? Just so much made up language. Is it a Clockwork Orange? Oh yeah, uh-huh. you know, and just yeah, yeah. so so pretentious as hell, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean, and it was fun and it was interesting, but I was like, is this? And it, but it got reject rejections because people were like, I don't understand what's going on, and I had to decide, okay, is this a fascinating experiment in language, or is this a story that I want people to actually be able to engage in? Mm-hmm. Because the language is actually getting in the way of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I pared a lot of it down, and I am. Um, you know, I sent it back to my original editor who did Maverick um, and she was trying to start a new imprint that fell through. I sent it to Philip K. Dick's agent. He said it was um, like having sex on a skateboard, which is apparently a bad thing. Yeah. No, apparently you can't concentrate on the act because you're so busy trying to skateboard. I don't know. Is that what you, is that what you actually said to you? In his, That's in what he picture. actually said. Yes. Bizarre. I know. Um, I've heard of such a such a response from an agent. I, I had to ask him to explain to me. I was like, what do you, what do you, so why is this, are you why is this a bad me? thing? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and so that didn't go anywhere. And eventually I po- approached a South African publisher um, who was doing very edgy and interesting stuff. Like they're really the most kind of experimental publisher in South Africa. And the publishing director, because in South Africa, the market's so small, you can actually reach out to people directly. Mm-hmm. And she read it on a plane and by, she was on her way to the Frankfurt Book Festival. And by the time she landed, um, I had a book deal, which was amazing. Amazing. Wow, um, but there was no advance. There was no money, you know. <laughs> and and the book got some really great reviews and then it sank without a trace, um, as so many books do. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's the same in the UK. You've got like six months, three to six months on the shelf and then yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. you're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the meantime, I managed to find a someone who was trying to be a local agent. Um, but I don't think you can be an agent from South Africa. You, the agent, agents need to be based in New York or London because that's where the business is. They need yeah. to be able to take editors for lunch, you know. So, and this was a guy with a website who was in the English department at the university, you know. Um, and I recommended this publisher, you know, a hot young upstart publisher I'd heard about called Angry Robot that I'd read about. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let's try them. So actually, I probably could have queried it myself and set up my own fake website and pretended to be my own agent. But, <laughs> um, and and yeah, I managed to get a deal with Angry Robot, and they signed me up for a two book deal, which was critical mm-hmm. because I don't know if I would have got round to writing Zoo City if it if I'd just been left to my own devices. Because there's real life, you know. I yeah. was pregnant at the time Moxieland came out, so I just had a baby, and um, I had my day job. It was just you know, it, it could have very easily disappeared if I hadn't got a two book deal, which now I suddenly had a deadline and I had to deliver something. Um, but thereafter, you know, I went through two more agents after that. Um, and now I've, um, on, I finally settled on my current agent, who will be my agent forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think it's important when you're looking at getting an agent is that 
to understand that it's like dating. You're not going to marry the first person you go on a date with, the mm-hmm. first person who's like, hey, you know, I swiped right on you, so let's go. This yeah. is it. We're here together forever. Yep. It's, a, it's a business relationship and it's a partnership. And this is the person that they have to get your work and they have to get you. Um, and they're never going to be everything to anyone, to everyone. You know, my agent is not an editing agent. He doesn't mm-hmm. like give me notes on my manuscript, but he's an ace salesperson and he's yeah. just an absolute pit bull. And that's amazing. That's what I need because I have other people to fill those roles for me in my life. Mm-hmm. But it took me three agents to get to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also what's really important is, you know, you were talking earlier about seizing an opportunity and running with it. Um, it's also understanding that, you know, you can say no to things and you can move on from relationships where it's not working. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a, a for, for people that are starting out, especially because there is this, you know, it can be very difficult to get an agent in the first place. And so yeah. when you get one, I imagine most people's instinct is to hang on with the, for the dear, for their dear lives, you know, um, absolutely and not want to look wider than that and think this is it. It was so hard to get this person. I'm not going to move on. But actually a couple of authors have now said to us, you know, it it does pay, you know, if the agent's working well, then fine. But but otherwise it does, it is worth having a look and seeing what else, if there is someone more suited to you, as you say, exactly. Yeah. Which is not to say that I'm saying that you've got to be like super fussy on your first agent, you know, but once you've got some things, some books under your belt, once you've got, got a reputation, once you're, out there in the marketplace, it is certainly something you can look at changing if you're very unhappy. Mm-hmm. And and when you're when you're writing these books, so you had your two book deal from Amsterdam yep. and Zoo City, mm-hmm. and as you're saying, you'd you just had a kid, you had your, you had your job in the day, and you had these deadlines, which is great in terms of I need to get this book done. But how do yep. you find the time? How do you? What, what was your routine for fitting that in? Oh God, no with sleep? I don't know now. I look back on it and I'm like, how? Where did I find this time? <laughs> um, but, you know, I was young and hungry. I'm now old and decrepit um, <laughs> and mildly sated. Um, but, yeah, I just I wanted it so badly that I made the time. And I think especially if you've got a new baby, like you realize how precious time is mm-hmm. and you steal it wherever you can. And my partner was very incredibly supportive, you know, and he would help look after the baby in South Africa. Also, you can afford childcare, and it's a vital part of the economy and like providing women with you know reasonable income. And that just made a huge difference. I can't imagine being in a country where I couldn't afford childcare, where I couldn't go to work mm-hmm. um, or have that time to be able to work. Um, so so that was really important. But yeah, like you, you steal like half an hour here or an hour there, a lot of late nights working. Um, and then uh, after Zuzi came The Shining Girls, which was, yeah. I think, your big international hit, I think it's fair yeah, to say. Yeah, so let me actually talk about how that came about. Yeah, absolutely. Which was... Um, so Zuse won the Artsy Clark Award, which changed everything for me. Um, and I just signed up with this new agent. And he said to me, you've got the spotlight. You're not going to have it forever. You've got a year to like come up with something really hot that I can sell. Um, and you, you know, you got the spotlight, you got basically tap dance. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea for a time traveling serial killer. I actually came up with it on Twitter, just kind of threw it out randomly and then quickly deleted it. I was like, no, 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 wait, that's really good. Never give away your good ideas on Twitter. Um, and, and yeah, I wrote the first kind of, I was supposed to write the first 30,000 words. I only managed to write the first 16,000 words. So I was still working my day job, still had a little kid. And, um, and yeah, Ali Munson, my agent, managed to sell it for a fortune at the Frankfurt Book Fair. Um, oh, that was just a, the sixteen thousand word stuff. Yeah, 
Fantastic. Yeah. And, and the fact that I'd won the artsy club. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, my dad talks to me about this, you know, he, he's like, he, he kept saying to me, he's like, you know, um, he reminded me about this the other day uh, he, that he was like, listen, this is a lightning strike. You've hit it big. Mm-hmm. And apparently at the time I said to him, because I was not just young and hungry, I was also kind of brash um, and pithy, but I said, well, it helps if you're holding a lightning rod. And I think that's it. It's that you have to put yourself out there and you have to, you don't just have to seize opportunity. You have to make opportunity. If you're in the spotlight, you've got to use it. You've got to, you've got to put the work in. Mm -hmm. And of course it's about luck. Um, And, you know, I'd I'd say it's like 10% luck, it's 10% talent. And then it's like 80% just determination and like not giving up. And, you know, Marcus Lang could have sunk without a trace and nothing would, my career could have ended there very easily. Um, but it's just about having like the guts to keep going. And mm. my friend Richard Cadby talks about how we all know writers who started at the same time as us, who are like a billion times better than we are, but they didn't carry through. Yeah. You know, and, and it's hard and it's horrible. And, and it's, you know, most writers don't make a living from their writing. I'm in the incredible, enviable position of being able to like do this full time. Mm-hmm. Um, it- but most writers don't. I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because it you put so much of yourself and so much time. It, you know, it's not like other things that people try, but it doesn't take as long. It can literally take years to write a novel and yep. it can be rejected. And the thought of then having to go back to square one and starting again puts so many people off, I think, at that point. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and it does feel, you know, I had a picture um, that really felt like... Uh, the writing experience. It was from an illustrator at the Cape Town Comic Fair. I can't remember her name, unfortunately. But it it showed a young girl and she literally ripped her heart out of her chest and it's kind of hanging with all the bloody tendons. And there are bits of heart around her mouth and there's just blood all over her mouth. And it does feel like that. It feels like you're ripping your bloody heart out of your chest and then kind of eating it. (laughs) And I I think you're, you're totally right when you say that, you know, we've all read amazing books that no one's ever heard of before that were totally sank without a trace yep. and we've all read books which are massive big number one big bestsellers and you get halfway through and you're like this is just shite like why how Absolutely. why is this so big and 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 it does it, you know it doesn't always come down to the quality of, of the writing it's the no. time of year it comes out what else is out the marketing blah 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 you know it's there's so much more to it than just the writing that's it's obviously probably the most important part of it but Absolutely. to an extent there's so much more which is important and 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 obviously, the zoos, they're kind of, you, you did a really good job capitalizing on the success and, to, and launching the Shining Girls when, when, when you did. And that is, I suppose, that's the best way to do it is to grab the opportunity and say, now this is my chance to, to, make, to make a mark. And it obviously worked. But also just to keep building, keep building and building and building and building. Yeah, and you yeah. plant, you know, you plant all your seeds and you hope that some of them sprout. And yeah, that's the thing as well with the Shining Girls TV deal, um, where it's being adapted into a major TV series. Uh, for Apple with Elizabeth Moss starring. Yeah. Awesome. But that deal took seven years. Seven mm. years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and if I just sat back and waited for that to happen, you know, that would just, you you've got you gotta just keep putting work out and you gotta hope that someday you're able to make enough money or, you know, find other ways. A lot of writers, you know, have Patreons or they have mm-hmm. supportive partners or mm-hmm. they have day jobs as well. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in that. And I think also, you know, coming back to why do like shite books do incredibly well sometimes, you know, some very big, very big commercial books are just often terrible. But the thing is to understand that publishing is a business 
you know it's i wish it was about art i wish it was about kind of just just purely elevating the most amazing and fascinating intriguing challenging voices but it's also about making money Mm -hmm. um and every dan brown or 50 shades pays for you know the smaller authors to actually get published yeah that's that's a nice way to look at it actually it's you know, the better that the publishers do, the more money they have to spend on smaller books and, and you know, first time authors, etc. So that I suppose it's, it's kind of swings around the boats and it's all absolutely part of a but it is, picture, yeah. But it is unfair. You know, suddenly when I got this big book deal, it meant that um, they had to ensure that it, the book worked. You know, they yeah. paid all this money for the book. They had to make sure it did really well, um, which means they spent more marketing on it. And mm. it felt like such a catch me too. So if you're a smaller author and you didn't get like a big, you know, um, mm. advance, Suddenly, they're not going to have all this marketing spend to put on you. You know, I had I had a giant billboard at that huge mall in London, um, <laughs> and it was mind blowing. Yeah. But you know, and, and then at the same time, I'm like, okay, well, you know, why can't we also do this for? I don't know. There's a South African author called Tandem Kalazano who's written this incredible, like, just really fascinating and incredibly challenging and quite difficult book. Um, Hear Me Alone, which is a Koza retelling of the um, nativity. And and it's so complex and it's so interesting. And it's just never going to have kind of the same mm-hmm. hit rates yeah. because it's not about a time-traveling serial killer. And it's just <laughs> never going to get a billboard. And yeah. and that sucks, but that's also capitalism. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, are you involved in the TV? Like, are you writing for the TV show? I'm not. They've got an amazing showrunner called Silke Louisa. Um, she's uh, really just this fantastic hotshot young writer um i really love what she's doing with the series we've had like some long conversations i've sent her some of my research and and some of my researchers um and i'm really excited with what she's doing with it it's amazing to see brilliant yeah no i'm really looking forward to that yeah Yeah. that must be such an absolute buzz to see that something someone taking the work and and changing it and into something different but the same and and seeing someone else get excited for for your work. I mean, that must be it. That, that might just be absolutely amazing, I think. It is. It's so cool to like, and and, and also I'm totally okay with whatever changes she's making, mm-hmm. as long as it's making it more interesting. Yeah. Um, and of course it has to evolve because it's for a different medium. But there's some things that, she've, that she's done that I'm like, damn it, I wish I thought about that. <laughs> yeah. That's genius. Um, it, is, it is quite hard because, I mean, as you say, there's things that work well as a book and and we've all seen adaptions where you think Watchmen source material. Yeah, yeah. Well, Watchmen, the the yeah. film exactly. The, the film. Yeah, bar Ugh. panel by panel, it, you know, it's and it looks amazing, but it doesn't really work. As Whereas a the TV no. show actually is a good adaptation. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Can, it knows what, what what the limitations are and the strengths of TV, and it adapts for that. And yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So though, that must be very exciting. Yeah, totally. But it's still, I mean, I think what's interesting about Watchmen the series is it's still coming from the same dark heart yeah. as Watchmen the comic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 its own thing. It's completely different. Um, but it shares the same kind of philosophy, the same seed. Yeah, and that's really interesting to see. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so the latest book is Afterland. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that so the listeners can mm. learn about that? Um, so, sorry, guys. Uh, there's been a global pandemic, and it <laughs> has killed. That doesn't sound realistic at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but this one has killed 99.9 percent of the male population. So I don't know if you guys are dead or not. I actually wanted to have a book launch where every man who came in got a little token uh, <laughs> to reveal whether he died or not. <laughs> so nine of men have died. Um, and there's a mom on the run with her 12-year-old son, Miles. And he's obviously disguised as a girl. Uh, he's one of the 35 million men surviving in the world. But there are a lot of people after him. 
because he's suddenly become a hot commodity and he's being um, objectified and sexualized and people are after him as a reproductive resource. Um, and she just wants to get him somewhere in the world where he can be safe and not held in a quarant luxury quarantine camp by the Department of Men or have all these tests done on him or sold off by like human traffickers. So it's this neo-noir chase across this kind of radically changed America, which still feels very familiar because, of course, it's three years after the pandemic. The world hasn't actually changed that much just because the men have died because the problems are the problems, right? Mm -hmm. um, and among the very diabolical people chasing after them is uh, Cole's sister, Billy, uh, Miles's aunt, and she's fallen in with a very bad crowd, a very violent woman who will do anything to get their hands on Miles. Excellent. Um, it's, a, it's a really good book. I mean... I, what struck me the most about it is that I think I've, we've all read post-apocalyptic stuff where it's kind of like more like a zombie or like a mm. you know just com society's completely collapsed and it's like the ruins of stuff. But there's something I thought more scary about a society that's still largely yeah. functioning, but it's just completely changed its focus on you know and, and it's just hunting down men type thing. You know that it's I found it a lot more effective than just everyone's out for each other type thing. I thought, I, I yeah. thought that was fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I think it was really influenced by Rebecca Solnit's um, book. Uh, God, what's it called? Something about the hope in the dark. About how, you know, during... Um, you know, during Katrina and during like a lot of kind of tragic world events, people actually do band together and they do mm -hmm. help each other and society doesn't fall apart and we're not completely screwed. And even when, um, you know, the police aren't available or... Uh, the government fails us like people actually do band together and they form res rescue operations and soup kitchens and mm. and it's been really interesting actually to see some of that happening during our real life pandemic yeah. um yeah especially in cape town because we're obviously still a very divided society in south africa i think we have the highest one of the highest gini coefficients in the world which is the divide between rich and poor and um and during the pandemic we've had a lot of kind of uh mainly white neighborhoods like or more affluent neighborhoods reaching out to work with uh, poorer neighborhoods in the townships. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's not top-down charity. It's like people working together with local community leaders and kind of really figuring out ways to help, whether that's a food drive or buying airtime for people to be able to organize, um, setting up schools, getting people masks. It's been really amazing and inspiring. And I'm like, why couldn't we have this on a normal day? Yeah. yeah. No, actually, that's something that I've noticed as well. You know, as Tarek was saying, you're, when something like this happens in fiction, a lot of the time, it's it's every man for himself kind of a thing. Mm. But the real life, to, to varying degrees, obviously, but there, there's been more more cause for hope in a lot of it than than what some of the fiction that you read. Um, yeah. But I mean, is it a good time to be releasing a book about a pandemic or a bad time? <laughs> Would you rather it was coming out at a different time or? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I guess it feels quite raw. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had some people say, you know, I've seen some social media stuff, people being like, nope, I'm going to nope out of this one. Nope, <laughs> definitely not interested. But I think I think it's important to point out that it's actually a post-pandemic novel. You know, mm -hmm. like we do see bits of the pandemic happening, but actually it's about the aftermath. It's about the world that we build afterwards. It's yeah. about how society has changed or not. Yeah. Um, and these characters kind of having this noirish chase. It also has a lot of... Um, references to what I was reading into as kind of Trump's America, you know, comments mm -hmm. about the kids being taken away even before this happened type thing. And I, I kind of wondered how, because obviously when you wrote this, I, I'm presuming that some a lot of stuff that you're kind of commenting on hadn't quite happened or was just happening. So is it a sense of 
do you did you have a kind of aim in mind of what you want of the topics that you wanted to tackle and then as time went on redrafting would you go back and add more and kind of you know grow those ideas as the drafts went went along is that how it kind of worked no, I think I think a lot of that stuff just emerged organically. Um, okay. Usually from you know these are things which I'm passionate about or angry about, and it just kind of leaks through my work naturally. So I didn't go back and pump up the Black Lives Matter stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that was I mean the protests of Black Lives Matter protests have been going on for years, and I've yeah. had several friends yeah. involved in them, filming them, making documentaries about them, and also you know Black American friends who've been going to them since the very beginning. And uh, one of my friends was actually talking about how. She grew up in South Africa, but she's actually a black American. And she um, she talked about how taking her little kids to some of these protests and how scary that was when people started having die-ins. Um, and, and her kids are mixed race. So, I, you know, I spoke to her a lot about kind of the experience of having mixed race kids in America, how scary that is. Um, but also, you know, she's talking about it being apartheid strategies, that the, you feel there's kind of apartheid levels of brutality from the police and the way mm-hmm. they're watching you and the way they're taking notes on who's there. Mm-hmm. So... It ties back to my interest in having lived through apartheid and seen like just how devastating that system was um, and how much it privileged me above other people as a white South African. Um, but also, yeah, just, just the stuff that I'm interested in, the stuff that I'm seeing happen in the world, you know, the comment about kids in cages and taking kids away from their parents and, you know, stealing kids from their parents in America has also been going on for years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that stuff was just kind of natural um, background. Mm-hmm. Part of the tapestry. Yeah. Tapestry is a terrible word. We should never use it. <laughs> and the other thing about the book is that, you know, in a lot of fiction like this where, you know, it's not the first book to say, um, to take sort of the idea of men dying out in, in the world. But in a lot of that type of fiction, it sort of says that women would run run the world better and they'd be automatically nicer nicer and more (laughs) loving and caring and all that but nurturing and motherly exactly all of these (laughs) things but in fact in your book you know there's a there's a mix there's a mix of humanity throughout it there's there are still the ruthless and selfish and horrible people in the book and there's and there is the other good side of it as well it's all shown across the across the spectrum i mean was it was it important to you that you didn't go in that sort of stereotypical route yeah because because you know at the time there was um during the period when i was writing the book somebody uh i I don't know whatever whatever happened to it but they were talking about doing an all-girl remake of lord of the flies Mm -hmm. and there were all these comments on twitter about like oh what are they going to do make friendship bracelets for each other and i was like have you met teenage girls yeah no exactly (laughs) like do you have any idea what teenage girls are capable of um and and it and i wanted yes absolutely i wanted to contest that idea you know i met a really great comics writer who's does some really fantastic work but he and i were at a panel in cape town and he talked about how you know his female characters are always the best people in the room mm-hmm. and that's kind of an anti-sexism sexism it's just it's like yeah. no a- allow your woman to breathe allow them to be venal allow them to be mm-hmm. greedy allow them to be full human beings who are capable of being corrupt and self-interested and violent and you know, delusional as much as they are, you know, loving and kind and nurturing and warm yeah. and mothering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and, and and again, I think that's also important for Miles. You know, I think that's an important thread through the book as well. Mm-hmm. Is like other kinds of masculinity and these kind of very rigid ideas that we have as a society are complete bollocks. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's right. And obviously, as well, it it means that you're dealing with with characters in the book that are much more complicated than sort of just 
two-dimensional sort of stereotypical figures, which always makes a book, you know, it, you buy into it a lot more because you recognise it because it's real. Absolutely. That, that, yeah. That's the, Almost like real people. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's, that's yeah. what I aim to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when you set out to write a book like this, do you spend a lot of time? You, you've, you've obviously, you've got the idea for the story and there's certain themes that you're wanting to explore in the, in the telling of it as well. But do you spend a lot of time researching it or are you someone that sort of just, picks that up naturally and just wants to get into the writing of it um i try to avoid the writing as much as possible because it's hard (laughs) and it's lonely and it's hard Mm -hmm. um uh so i'll do as much research as i can and yeah and then i'll have those big scary deadlines breathing down my neck and i'll actually Mm -hmm. have to write or whatever um but no yeah i you know i do a lot of research i use a lot of my journalism skills Mm -hmm. um you know, for over the course of like the last five years, every conversation I had with someone, you know, if I met someone new, I was like, oh, what industry are you in? Okay, what would happen if all the men died? You know, whether <laughs> yeah. it was, you know. Um, but then I also did a bit of the road trip myself. You know, I flew out to the States on two separate occasions mm-hmm. and I kind of drove some of the journey and went mm-hmm. and stopped in places. Um, Miami's obviously very key and so, so is Salt Lake City, but I also stopped mm-hmm. in Atlanta and kind of Napa and san francisco um to that really just kind of nice research i know trip. it was pretty fun road trip, is it? i know and it's tax deductible <laughs> it's a business expense i'm just gonna say that i'm just yeah. i'm just going on a research trip for two months that's what it is i know um the problem is that you know i like to do deep dives in my books into cities so you know the shining girls are set in chicago mm-hmm. zoo city is johannesburg broken monsters is detroit and I really like to kind of dig deep into those communities and kind of embed. Um, but with with this, because it's a road trip novel, like every time I kept wanting to just embed in a city and spend as much time with those characters as possible and kind of explore all the interesting like nooks and crannies. And I was like, no, it's a road trip. They have to be on the road. You have to get them out of here. They cannot linger and hang out with these cool radical anarchists mm-hmm. in Salt Lake City for the next three weeks. They have to get going. They're being chased. And and that was actually quite difficult for me. Um and did you did you also do research then into sort of you know these types of stories these road trip type stories or is that something that you've you've read before and seen before? Uh, you know, I've read of... I've read before, and you know, mm. I think I think I was kind of speaking to the road a bit as well, mm. which you know is also very much Cormac McCarthy's take on this, where mm. it is a very apocalyptic society, mm. and you do yeah. have cannibal bikers. And I completely, dis- as a parent, I completely disagree with the ending. Um, I'm like, mm-hmm. there's no ways I would let my kid mm-hmm. in that circumstance. Um, but yeah, so I I didn't do a ton of research into that. I try to avoid reading books that are too similar to what I'm writing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because Margaret Atwood nearly tanked my career because I was writing <laughs> Moxie Land and then I read Oryx and Crake and I was like, well, <laughs> what is the point? Um, and also it means if you come up with an idea yourself, it means you can't then use it because you've read it in someone else's book. Yeah, Maybe yeah. you would have come across a similar idea organically. So, you know, Naomi Alderman's a friend of mine. I specifically avoided reading The Power. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry, I can't yeah. read it until I'm done because mm-hmm. um, we're, we're in too close territory. Tarek? Um, when, you're, when you're writing this book, was there, because it's been, I know there's about six years or so between The Shining yeah. Girls and this book. And I kind of wondered, you know, and previously you'd kind of had them out within two years or so of each other. Yeah. And, and I did wonder, was there, did you feel like a kind of pressure to perform after the success of The Shining Girls? Was that was there yeah. like a, more of a stress there writing this one? There was a huge stress. Um, and I think also just relentlessly. So, you know, The Shining Girls, 
I wrote it and then I was touring it. Um, I was away for like nine weeks. Um, and, and South Africa is far from everywhere. You know, it's mm-hmm. 11 hours flights to the nearest place where there are bookish events. Um, and I was jet lagged and it was just, I was, I was very burned out, but I had to deliver Broken Monsters at the same time. Mm, yeah. um, and then, you know, my marriage fell apart at the same time. And, and I was just very burned out after, after Broken Monsters came out. And I, yeah. and I just wanted to do something lighter. Broken Monsters and the Shining Girls are both serial killer novels. I was like, I just can't spend so much time in that dark headspace. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of killing, you know, a few people in horrible ways, I decided to kill all of mankind. Yeah, totally. But I, but I do think that mental health is like really important, you yeah. know, and it's really important to being able to function as a human being, but also as a writer. And when I first started um, psychotherapy, I was like, well, I'm worried that, you know, so much of what comes through in my books is subconscious and i'm writing myself and i'm writing through myself and if i take that away if i start sitting down and analyzing it and understanding it that's going to take away some of the magic of the book yeah um but amazingly it doesn't actually work like that um cool. and depression is not a good way to kind of function as a human being or as a writer no and yeah medicine is a wonderful thing <laughs> and d- during that time did you write because you have written some comics as well you've done some uh, yeah favorite- totally yeah so it wasn't like i was just yeah, writing exactly. this book Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wrote Survivor's Club with a friend of mine, which is very dark horror, but it was fun because it was a comic mm-hmm. and we were playing with kind of horror tropes and, you know, it was, it's, what if the 80s horror movies were real and um, and what happened to those kids who survived yeah. Yeah. and where are they today? And that was just so much fun. And I love collaborative work. Mm-hmm. It's um, It takes all that pressure off you. And, you know, this wasn't a novel. It wasn't literary. Mm-hmm. It was it was a horror comic. Yeah. Um, and that was just terrific. I also released a short story collection. I released an updated version of Maverick. Um, I wrote a bunch of original short stories. So, yeah. And, and that's, again, the thing. Just you got to keep working. And yeah. is obviously the process of writing for a comic is, is, is as you say, it's much more collaborative um, with the artist and things like that. But is, yeah. is that a process that you said before that the writing of the, of the novel is the, is the bit you try and leave to the last last part but well it's not the last part but but it's the part i i the part i resist and the part i hate and the part i find very difficult yeah i do i I do research and write and research and write and research and write but but with a comic is it is it more is it easier to do because there is that collaborative side so you can have a discussion with someone is it a bit of a lighter burden i suppose it is a lighter burden. So with Survivor's Club, I co-wrote it with uh, my friend Dale Halverson. It was actually his idea. And although he hasn't written stuff before, he's such a joy to write with. And we'd literally sit together and we'd, we'd kind of improv the dialogue mm-hmm. and kind of act out the scenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd sit and type and he'd be sitting watching over my shoulder. I know most people would find this a nightmare, but it was actually great. And I'd write the dialogue and I'd look at him and he'd be like, no, actually, this line would be wittier. And I'm like, yes, that's amazing. Or we both sit in things like, no, no, they're stuck here. Okay. And we pace around the room and we talk and maybe rescue the stupid cat out of the tree because she was stuck in the yeah. tree. Um, and and just constantly like just having another person and talking through problems. You know, I worked in kids animation for uh, three or four years and and ran the writer's room. I was kind of the showrunner on the Adventures of Pax Africa. And that was so much fun because you always have other minds to help you. And when you're stuck, you're like, God, I can't get out of this somebody else can pick up the slack. And sometimes their suggestion is is mad or stupid mm-hmm. um, or just wrong, but that'll spark you onto yeah. something else. And that's what I love about collaborative work is sparking off other people 
Um, and sometimes they'll come up with something, often they'll come up with something you wouldn't have dreamed of. And you're like, my God, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's the real joy for me is like really being able to experience other people's heads um, and the magic that goes on inside them. Um, th th that's this, actually, it's interesting because when we've spoken to other people about sort of who have co-written with people, they've often said that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll do it separately. They'll sort of come up with the idea and then they'll co-write separately. Whereas... Tarek and I have written some stuff mm. together and we do it exactly the way you say it, and that's the fun of it in a way that's why we want yep. to tell a story together is because yeah. you have that interaction immediately and and you can bounce lines off each other and bounce ideas and stuff like that that's that's the fun part but I've just been surprised that so Definitely. many people don't do it that way that's yeah that's yeah. the thing look I mean I think you have so many different kinds of people and writers you know I before pandemic life I used to rent a studio space uh, with people that I really liked and I go and like I had to have other people around I hate the idea of like going to an island and writing in some castle all by myself makes me feel ill because I need people um, I'm an extrovert and that's so important for me and and I actually become very depressed and very insular and I'm not able to write if I don't get that kind of um, social mm -hmm. so but some people that's their dream my friend Sarah Lotz, who does write um, you know as just as you said where she swaps chapters with her co-writer Louis mm -hmm. Greenberg um, she just wants to be, you know, in her cottage in the countryside and be left alone. And no one must come near her and she doesn't want to do any events. And, and that's, and she loves writing and she loves every second of it. Mm -hmm. And she falls into it. And I'm like, oh, God, God damn you. Why, how do you find this like so fun? Um, <laughs> whereas I need people and, and I struggle with writing. It's, it's hard. Does, does writing with, with someone. But it's also very satisfying when it goes well. Yes. And, and does when when you write with someone does that overcome the kind of the writer's block or the that or do, is that something you ever struggle with normally or is that is that something you don't really tend to have? I put myself under immense pressure, like crippling pressure, um, especially with each success. Um, and I still suffer from imposter syndrome. And I think when you're working with someone else, because it's more collaborative, because it's more playful. Um, there's either well there's no real time for the pressure because you're trying to like you know work with someone and you don't want to let them down mm -hmm. um but also also you know i am pretty good at what i do and and being with someone else and riffing off them makes me realize that and helps me understand mm -hmm. that and you know i try to like kind of have smaller projects that are just fun to do where i'm not kind of putting the entire weight of like my entire career and my entire future career yeah. on my shoulders yeah. where I'm just kind of having fun. And I think that's what's so important. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's also part of the problem of being an artist, you know, of wanting to take on the whole world is you do take on the whole world. And, mm. you know, what makes you an interesting writer is because you're sensitive and because you are aware of everything which is happening. Um, but that can also be kind of soul crushing. Um, and you said earlier on, um, you like to, you know, the importance of having someone to read your work. Uh, when you, is that a process that you do once you've finished a whole draft or, or will you share that as you're writing it? I'll share it as I'm writing it. So, right. you know, ideally like once a week I'll send off my pages to my best friend um, okay. and she is just phenomenal and we, we've been collaborating together as well. Um, and I think it's just so important for you to have some kind of feedback but to also very carefully curate your feedback. Mm -hmm. Um because if somebody doesn't get it and they don't understand what you're trying to do, that can kill the project dead. When it comes to that, when you get feedback, do you always take it on board or do you uh, 
sort of let it sit for a while and say, I agree with that part, I don't agree with that part? You know, how do you respond to notes? Oh, no, I'm pretty cocky. Um, (laughs) I I know what's right. Uh, And and I also know when... But I also know when someone's pointed out something that's better. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's like, oh, well, this is actually a problem. And have you thought about this? I'm like, my God, genius. Um, but I'm generally pretty strong on what I know is working. And that's funny because there's so much self-doubt in the actual writing. But when it comes to, I actually do understand why I did what I did. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it's this weird cognitive dissonance of, um, I guess you're kind of gaslighting yourself at the end of the day. That's that's what imposter syndrome is, right? Yeah. And it's very stupid. We mm-hmm. should all stop it. Stop it. <laughs> and um, do you have any more plans for for AA, any more of the comic books in the future? Is that something you'd like to do more of? Yeah. So you know, I'm thinking about what to do next. Um, we're looking at adapting Afterland as a TV show. Awesome. Um, so I'll be writing that with my friend Sandbag Bessinger, um, which will be really exciting. I've got some other really cool projects that are coming up. So I've got a new novel that's due probably well by the end of the year, maybe. Let's just ignore that. Forget the <laughs> deadlines. Um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, it's just kind of trying to figure out what to do with my time because I've got a ton of ideas and I'd love to see them happen. I'd love to do more comics. I'd love to like get back into animation. Um, I'd love to do more film and TV work. But it's, you know, unfortunately, this is the life we have and this is the time we have. And you got to like pick and choose. And, and I think that's what's really important is, you know, you should only write about what you're really passionate about and what you really, really care about that you're willing to spend years of your life yeah. kind of yeah. just living through and in and carrying around with you every day. Yeah. Uh, the, the Afterland uh, adaptation, did you say, sorry, you're, are you actually going to be writing some of the, the, the screenplays for that? Yeah. So Excellent. we've been pitching it at the moment and that's been really exciting. And, and again, also really exciting to be collaborating with my friend Sam because mm-hmm. we're in those pitch meetings together. Again, you're not carrying the entire weight on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is it's like a trapeze act, right? Like yeah. you you can soar and do amazing acrobatics because someone has thrown you or caught you and flung you higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I really love love working with other people. It's my mm-hmm. favorite thing. Awesome. And uh, is the Shining Girls is that the TV show? Is that coming out next year? No, they'll only no. start filming next year. You know, pandemic and of also course. Elizabeth yeah, Moss. Yeah. Elizabeth Moss is like super busy and super successful. Yeah. I know. Yeah. God. <laughs> Uh, no, that's a, I can actually see her in the part actually perfectly, to be honest. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kind of like something a little bit like the Invisible Man role almost, that kind of like oh, God, hunted, yeah. you know, female character. I can see that working really well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. She was in, she was amazing in the Invisible Man. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was so creepy yeah. and such yeah. a wonderful update. Yeah. You know, it was a good yeah, update. Yeah. Yeah. About totally. sexual abuse and, well, yeah. well, well you yeah. know, about abusive relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I thought it did it. It kind of avoided the whole hammy of previous invisible you know it just it would do that kind of simple thing with the camera just pans across and in your head you're <sighs> lingering like, is he there is someone's standing there and you don't see anything and that but it's constantly that feeling of being watched was just it was so well done cue the moment where my basket chair just starts yeah <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the last film you saw uh, the old god, uh, with Charlize oh, right. Theron, yeah. oh, yeah. which was just so fun. Uh, it's based on Greg Rucker's comic book, mm-hmm. and um, and I think he's amazing. I love Gotham Central. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, it was just hella fun, like super, I don't know, inclusive. There's a gay couple among the superheroes, a very feminist. Uh, Charlize just being her general badass self, um, incredibly watchable, just really fun, a hell of a ride. I loved it. Nice. Yeah, no, I've not watched it yet, but definitely it's one that, um, that is on yeah. the to-watch list. Um, yeah. And uh, what was the last book that you read? Um, the last book I read was um, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia's Amer- uh, Mexican Gothic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's just phenomenal. It's this kind of creeping Gothic uh, Lovecraftian haunted house romance and intrigue and abusive families, just slow burn build and then things go horribly wrong. So beautifully written, really engaging and really creepy. It gets under your skin. Brilliant. Or maybe an infection across your skin, spreading <laughs> everywhere slowly. <laughs> and a last TV series you watched or are um, watching? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think about this. Lovecraft Country is amazing. Oh um, yeah, I've watched it recently, but I've not watched the watched the yeah. show yet. But it's, yeah, um, it's and, and I'm rewatching The Wire um, because uh, I'm co-quarantining with my neighbors on the other side. They're very good friends of mine, and um, uh, my friend Haley and I. She's a neuroscientist, so we get to have like cool brain discussions. But then we also sit in bed and watch The Wire, and sure. she's never seen it, and it's just wonderful oh. to revisit it. Yeah, it's um, phenomenal. Yeah. One of these shows, I think, it took me a couple of tries to get into i think but when it kind of clicked it was yeah it's so it's so dense and it's, it's packed it's so much commentary and stuff it's just yeah, yeah. It, it's i keep it's meaning to watch it all again at some point but it's, it's brilliant. you must i rewatched breaking bad um you know the beginning of the year and just phenomenal it's just so amazing to see this really smart really interesting tv with these compelling characters who are so real mm-hmm. who are so kind of you know they they act badly or they act not in their own interests and they self sabotage and they um they're just you know people like that but it's also so compelling to like ride along with them yes yeah, it's, it's the perfect medium for stories like that isn't it because yeah. you you get to know the characters so much and then what happens shocks you all the more in some cases yeah. you know it, yeah. it, it's, it's brilliant these is as they say the sort of golden age for TV, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Walt's arc at Breaking Bad is from is one of my favourite. You know, this the downfall and his character progression is just so well done. And yeah, but it's just it's, a story about fall. It's like broken pride and the fall of pride. That's yeah, all it is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just, it's, a, it's an old story for sure. Yeah, magnificent. But also, I'm really enjoying Better Call Saul, which does the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's you know? fantastic as well. Yeah, and and and, and that is kind of. It's not pride. It's um, compromise. It's this mm-hmm. kind of constantly compromising, mm-hmm. constantly just kind mm-hmm. of sliding into just being corrupt and awful and justifying everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the very last thing we always do is an either or, and I always say there's no right or wrong answers apart from one question. But the first one is <laughs> oh God. Uh, <laughs> Children of Men or The Handmaid's Tale. As books or as uh, uh, screen? Either. Um, the well, Handmaid's Tale. No, The Handmaid's Tale is a book, and um, Children of Men as a as a movie. Okay, cool. fair enough. Um, TV or cinema? TV. Uh, Why the Last Man or Fables? Fables. Uh, 
real book or an e-book? Real book. I'm afraid that was uh, the inc- incorrect answer there. Oh, no, uh, but Lauren. I have with, 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 no, I'm sorry, God. End, end the podcast, Don't worry, Marco, Lauren, everyone, <laughs> I, think, Plus. I think only two people in the whole of the 50 episodes we've recorded <laughs> yeah. say, have said ebook, much to Tarek's disappointment. I have yeah. been reading more on ebook uh, on my Kindle now just because, um, yeah, I don't know, it just, it, I normally hate it, but I guess also not being able to go to bookstores so much. Yeah. And also normally I get sent a bunch of books, but the South African postal system is being in pandemic array. So I'm not sure if I'll get your beautiful notebook, but I hope I will. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I have been reading more on ebook at the moment. Okay, cool. I'll, 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 I think I'll count that as a win. All right, cool. All right, a half a point. Half, half a point. point. Half a point, right, yeah. okay. Update the score with Cartier's uh, Last one, Tarek. Uh, last one, we'll go for fancy restaurant or a takeaway. Uh, in the pandemic, I'm going to go with the takeaway, but from a fancy <laughs> restaurant. Nice, nice, nice. yeah, perfect. <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of interesting answers there. Really, really stretch the whole one, one or the other. But that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but I, I'm not particularly fond of like staying within my genre or like you know following rules. <laughs> <laughs> So another another one for the ebook there. I don't. I know you tried to claim that as a half point, but yeah, I think I'll, I think we'll take that as a half point. Is that, what, is that we don't? That, that's half point now. I think we've got. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think you, the score is something like 40, 41 to a half point. Yeah, so you're, you're getting there. We're coming back. This is this is the big comeback. Yeah. Big, well, here we go. No, that was that was a lot of fun. It was. Uh, yeah, interesting that the part she almost struggles with the most is the writing part you know that the main part of it is the she almost dreads it and that's it's, it's quite interesting you know it's, it's difficult as we all know you know sometimes it will flow easily but a lot oh, of the yeah. time it's it you have to make yourself do it that's the thing which is what yeah. she was sort of saying there as well but i thought it was interesting as well i was sort of heartened to hear as as someone that collaborates in writing with you, Tarek, that there, there, there are other people who are successful at writing that write in this, in that collaborate in the same way that we do, which is to sit yeah. in the same room and sort of bounce ideas off each other. Because yep. when we've spoken to other people that do that, as I said to Lauren, it's often they seem to come up with an idea and then go off in their separate ways and sort of just exchange chapters yeah. via email, kind of a thing. For me, I think the whole joy about collaborating is the energy of being in that same room and and as you say bouncing ideas back and forth trying a line here there you know and you kind of lose that i would have thought when you're writing it it just feels like you're writing it like a normal book yeah exactly yeah i think so i mean obviously it works for some people but definitely um i like the the sort of spontaneity and the you, you can it's easier to get through a a problem that you might encounter if you were writing on your own, if you've got yeah. someone there and you can sort of chat through it. But um, really big thanks to Lauren for coming on the podcast and taking the time to record that. We really appreciate that. And Afterland is just out. I highly recommend it. It's a great yeah. book, yeah. Um, as are her previous books as well. So if you haven't read them, I would definitely recommend picking them up. Read Shining Girls before the Elizabeth Moss Yes. Show debuts in 2022. Yes, definitely. definitely. So hurry up. <laughs> uh, and uh, who have we got on next week, Derek? Next week we have, we're going back to the world of political intrigue. Next week <laughs> we are. With uh, Ian Dunt, who is a fantastic writer. He's um, a journalist. He writes for, he's the editor, in fact, of 
politics.co.uk mm-hmm. and he's got a couple of books out. His second book is just coming out. Yeah. Just now, I believe. How to be a liberal. Indeed. It's, and it's a excellent read. It is actually. It's a really, uh, I, I sound surprised, which I don't mean to. Mean. <laughs> but, you know, it, when when someone says, here's a, here's a book about a political idea, it doesn't immediately think, oh, this will be an interesting read. But it's a really, the way he's constructed it, yeah, and drafted yeah. it, and goes through the history of liberalism, but in a really interesting way. I mean, um, it sounds like it was a nightmare to write. Oh, yeah. So, you know, he he, he hated writing struggle. it. Yes. <laughs> I don't think he'll write another book. But <laughs> but uh, it's definitely definitely worth picking up. And it was a really great chat with him, just yeah, hearing about his political writing and what drives him and all that sort of stuff. So I uh, highly recommend tuning into that one. But then I would say that. <laughs> yeah, I'll go. I think I'll give that one a listen, Mark. <laughs> yeah. But of course, if anybody wants to get in touch with us, they can always send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or they can send us a tweet to at right underscore gear. We're always more than happy to uh, take all your questions and throw them in the bin. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. It's not that that's we don't get any. any <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and uh, if you do enjoy the podcast please do take the time to give us a quick rating and leave a review on Apple Podcasts especially and only say that because that's the one that seems to push you up in all the rankings but also I think other podcast apps like Podbean and various others let you leave reviews and ratings so um, we'd love to do love to see that it encourages us apart from anything else <laughs> but also helps us to get uh, more great guests on the podcast and we've got some really exciting guests lined up for this season but anyway that's enough from us and uh, we'll see you next week see you later